We'll take out your Bibles again. Let's turn to John chapter 5. And we will be looking at verses 31 through 47. John chapter 5, 31 through 47. And again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? When you, when you receive glory from one another, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The grass withers the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We ask now, O oh God, that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray that you would sow deeply the seeds of your word, that it would grow and produce fruit tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold. May we be a fruitful people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there were to be a court case to, say, adjudicate a crime, there would also, need to, there would also be a need for witness testimony. Now, multiple people would testify to the facts of the case. Now, in our own day, there might be eyewitnesses who testify, or perhaps there are forensic experts who would testify. In Israel, the requirement was that there would be at least two or three witnesses for the case to proceed. We saw this as we read Deuteronomy chapter 17, which called for the evidence of two or three witnesses before one was put to death for a crime. In this case, the crime of an abomination of, of worshiping something other than God. So there's a need for multiple witnesses. 
The facts of the case, what did or did not happen, would, needs to be established by witnesses. In a similar sense, if you or, I, you or I were to sign a legal document, there is there even a need for eyewitnesses. Those eyewitnesses ensure that it is you or I who are actually signing this document, that we are in fact who we say we are. This kind of witness is vital to ensure the legality of the document, to, to ensure the legality of the proceedings, the necessity of witnesses. And so witnesses play an important role in legal procedures in our own country, and really of any nation. The legality of a document, the facts of a case need to be ensured. They need to be established so that justice may be served, that the general equity of the nation be protected. In John chapter 5 here, we find Jesus being questioned by the religious authorities. In fact, he had been accused of breaking the Sabbath. He had healed a man on the Sabbath day, and he had told that same man to take up his mat and walk. And so, in a sense, Jesus is here in John chapter 5 on trial. And since he is on trial, Jesus proceeds to call upon the testimony of expert eyewitnesses. He calls upon the legal documents of Israel to establish the facts of the case as to who he is and the work that he has done. Through these, the authorities should know the truth concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But before getting to that, Jesus first establishes the reason for this testimony. The reason for these witnesses. Verse 31, he says this, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, the word if there forms a conditional clause, which is here used in a present general condition. Jesus is not saying that his single testimony by itself makes his assertions about himself untrue. That's not what he's saying. Just because there's only one person testifying doesn't change the truthfulness of the situation. However, if the burden of fact is dependent solely on one person's self-testimony, then there could, it could not be determined to be true. There's no way to validate the claims. In order to validate a claim, it's necessary for others to testify as well. And so Jesus is saying that he is ready, he is ready to provide witnesses beyond just himself. And so he says in verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So notice he mentions another. Another who bears witness about me. This is speaking specifically of God the Father, but Jesus will return to the Father later. And the Father bears witness about the Son, testifies all that the Son says and does is true. 
Already Jesus had said that the Son can do nothing of Himself. And then later on in John chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has Himself given me a commandment. What to say? What to speak? And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And so in this way... The Father will speak and testify on behalf of the Son, Jesus Christ. But how will they be able to hear from the Father? Jesus' hearers needed needed corroborative evidence. They needed the testimony of someone that they knew, that they could speak to. And so Jesus turns first to John the Baptist, who had come into the world to bear witness to the light. I remember that from chapter 1. Here, verse 33, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. So they had already talked with John. Back in chapter 1, John the evangelist records that the priests and the Levites had come to the Baptist and were asking him this, who are you? And John confessed that he is not the Christ. But he said that he was a voice crying in the wilderness. He testified that one would come after him who ranks before him because he was before him. This is what John the Baptist had already testified to. Further, John testified, John chapter 1, verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so, John the Baptist has already testified as to who Jesus is. That He is the Son of God. That Jesus has always been. That He had come, that John had come to baptize with water, but Jesus had come to baptize with the Spirit. And so, the the opposition to Christ, the priests and the Levites... These religious authorities, they had already heard the testimony of John the Baptist. And the thing is, is that they considered John the Baptist to be something of a prophet. They, they believed him to be a prophet. And so Jesus lays before them the testimony that they had already heard from John the Baptist. But though they thought highly of John the Baptist... They did not believe his testimony. John Calvin suggests that their refusal to believe is rooted in their own malice for Jesus Christ. They had sent for John, ostensibly to learn, seeing John as, Jesus says, a burning and shining lamp. And they were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. They enjoyed his teaching. They inquired as to whether or not he might be the Messiah himself or or exactly who he was. And then when John answers their questions, they ignore him. Because he's not telling them what they wanted to hear. 
They didn't want the truth from John any more than they wanted the truth from Jesus. What they wanted was a Messiah who would fit their agenda, and this didn't fit their agenda. They didn't, they weren't interested in the truth, though. The witness of John was to be a light to those in darkness. And some among the Jewish leadership rejoiced for a time in John's burning light, but their faith was only outward. It was only for a little while. Uh, The word used here is our. In other words, their belief was transitory in nature. It was temporary in nature. It was not true saving faith. They didn't care to listen to John's testimony of Jesus as the Son of God. But But this is why Jesus brings John the Baptist up. Because here is a witness, an eyewitness, that they had outwardly claimed would be of value to them. Surely John the Baptist would speak the truth. But then Jesus unmasks their refusal to believe. They would not believe the one human witness that they should have believed. But it's not like Jesus really needed the testimony of men. Humans do not make what Jesus says true. They don't make these things to be true. Nevertheless, the Baptist pointed to the truth, and the opponents of Jesus ought to have believed him and been saved, but they didn't believe. Jesus is saying, though, that John is not alone. And He's not alone in a sense, a a good witness to fully validate the truth in a court of law. Yet, if only they would have listened to him, they could have known the truth and they could have been saved. But they have ignored the first witness called to the stand. They have missed the truth. They they didn't care to hear the one that they should have listened to. And so, Jesus calls now a second witness. Starting in verse 36. This is the works that the Father had given to the Son. Now, regardless of how valuable uh, the testimony of John the Baptist might, might be, and regardless of how great John's words were to a watching world, Jesus actually has far weightier witnesses. Look, for, look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For if the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now you might ask, well, what has Jesus done? What are the works of Jesus? Well, he turned water into wine. He told the woman all about her life, her her messy past and her sinful present. He healed a lame man at the pool of Bethsaida. He healed an official son who was near death. And this is only what was recorded in John's Gospel up to this point. There are many, many other signs and wonders which Jesus did. And each of these signs point to the truth of Jesus' teaching. Jesus doesn't perform these divine signs for their own sake. He wasn't a willy-nilly miracle worker. You know, hey, let me, let me show you a little something. That's not what Jesus was doing. He wasn't trying to impress people with, you know, hey, I can, I can heal people. Watch this. And for my next trick. 
Now he did these signs to validate his office and the authority that he had to teach as he did the kingdom of God. Every sign pointed to the thing signified, namely, Jesus Christ as the Son of God. God, the Father's purpose, was to highly exalt the Son. And this was in part accomplished through the performance of miraculous signs and wonders. These signs and wonders are appealed to by Jesus as a witness to his, to his identity as the Son of God. These are, in some sense, a testimony of the Father. For Jesus only does that which the Father had given him to do. Nothing more and nothing less. It is God the Father who had given the things for God the Son to do, which the people themselves had seen. And if they won't believe Jesus' words, they should at least believe his works. The works of Jesus ought to be enough to demonstrate that he had been sent by the Father. But notice that Jesus does not say that the works prove that he is the Son of God. Rather, they they authenticate his identity as the Son of God. But again, the Jewish leaders are prejudiced against Christ. They had shut their eyes against his works. We saw this already when he had healed this paralytic on the Sabbath day. It didn't even enter their minds to glorify God for this amazing thing which had taken place. They didn't care that this man had been crippled all his life and was now walking about. It didn't matter to them. They're blinded by their own concerns and their own agendas. And so they wanted Jesus to be shut down. Nevertheless, Jesus' signs and wonders easily demonstrate and validate the truth of who Jesus is. And yet, the enemies of God purpose to ignore them to their own destruction. The works of Jesus then are an indirect testimony from the Father. But the Father, but the, but the Father Jesus said, has sent him and had himself borne witness about the Son. So where do we find this? Where do we find this testimony of the Father? Well, in the Synoptic Gospels, each of them record the voice of God speaking from heaven at Christ's baptism. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. John, of course, uh, the Gospel of John does not record this event directly, but it would have been familiar enough to his readers Peter in his epistle, along with Matthew, also write of the Father speaking in the same manner at the Transfiguration. Although that event may not have occurred quite yet at this point in John. The point is that the Father has spoken directly of the Son. The Father himself bears witness to Christ. However, there is another way in which the Father has spoken. And bears witness, and that is in the Old Testament scriptures themselves. The scriptures are the testimony of the Father because they are God's self revelation. And so the accusers of Jesus had the scriptures, they had the voice of God. And yet, verse 37 His voice you have never heard. 
His form you have never seen, and you do not have the word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Here, Jesus is not presenting a positive assessment of his hearers' acceptance of God's revelation. They had never heard the voice of God, he says. This is, this is pretty bad, isn't it? I mean, they have the scriptures, and yet they've never heard from God. They have not seen his form. Unlike Jacob, who had seen the form of God, having wrestled with the Lord, they had not seen him. Yet Jesus is the manifestation of the invisible God in the flesh. He's standing right before them. Their unbelief in him means that they haven't seen God. They haven't recognized God. And so the word does not abide in them because they do not believe. The Bible speaks of believers hiding the word in their hearts, meditating on the word day and night. But these religious leaders were living lives independent of God's indwelling word. They didn't have the word in themselves. And so they refused to believe the one whom God had sent, Jesus Christ. They did not know God because they did not have God's word. God has spoken to the fathers at many times in various ways, but they had not anticipated the ultimate in God's self-revelation, the, the word incarnate. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant promises which they were supposed to have anticipated. And their failure to believe indicates that they had not hidden the word in their hearts. Not really. That they had not taken the word of God seriously. And thus the word does not abide in them. What makes this even more tragic is that the Lord's opponents had been studious pupils of the scriptures. It's not that they didn't have it, like literally, they had it. It's not that they weren't even studying it. They were even doing that. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is tragic, isn't it? It's not that they weren't reading the word. They had in fact been diligent students of the word. The problem was with their approach to the word was fatally flawed. Here's a good reason why hermeneutical principles really do matter. How we approach the scriptures really matters. How we search the scriptures is important. Not just that we search them. The Jewish authorities had searched the scriptures. They knew that in them was eternal life. And yet they had missed the scriptures most important lesson. They had not grasped the Bible's significant message and teaching. This is sad. Please listen carefully here. It is not the reading of the Bible itself which is life-giving. It's not just simply opening it up and reading it. It gives life. Lots of people read their Bibles without any noticeable change. It's not the reading that brings life. Rather, it's the contents of the Scriptures which gives life. 
God has given to men the rich deposit of His own self-revelation. In the Word of God, we find the fount of life. For as Jesus points out, He says, all of the Scriptures point to Me. Jesus is the object of our faith. Because the Scriptures point to Him. This is truly the tragedy. The Jewish leaders had the Word of God in their hands, as it were. They had diligently studied the Word. They had poured over it, and yet they had missed the main thrust of God's revelation. They had mishandled the Word. The Scriptures from beginning to end testify to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet these people had refused to come to Christ that they may have life. They missed the point. The issue here is one of hermeneutics. How one reads and interprets the scriptures. And too many, even our own day, impose a structure upon the scriptures that is simply not there. Scripture should interpret scripture. God is, in fact, his own interpreter. In fact, Jesus has told us how to read the scriptures, hasn't he? We ought to read the scriptures looking for him. All of the prophecies, all of the promises, all of the covenants, every psalm, the giving of the law, every type and shadow and illusion speak to the coming revelation of God in Jesus Christ Himself. All of Scripture speaks of Jesus. And Jesus had come to fulfill the law and the prophets. You see, it's not the keeping of the law which would bring about a person's salvation. The Apostle Paul is a great example of that. He learned that to be the case. And he argued in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, that if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But it's not the law which brings life. Jesus Christ himself is the one to whom the Father had given the right to have life in himself and to give life to others. For Christ is, Romans 10.4 says, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The diligent Jew who searched the scriptures and yet fails to come to Jesus for life, refusing to believe, proves that they were not reading the scriptures as they were meant to be read. What a horrible thing it would be to be so committed to autonomy and your Bible reading that you twist the meaning of Scripture in order to come to your own personal conclusions and desires. And beloved, don't think this is only the ancient Jews who do this. All you got to do is spend a little time on Facebook and you can find out. I have conversations with people who call themselves Christians and you find out. Many people twist the scriptures to come to their own personal conclusions, their own desires, and they miss the point. They miss Jesus. They miss the one who actually gives life, the object of our faith. This beloved congregation is why you and I need to read and study the scriptures with a spirit of humility. We need to be humble in our interpretations. And we also need to remember that we don't interpret alone. We don't interpret independent of of church history. We don't interpret independent of those to whom we must be accountable, ultimately to God Himself. For ultimately, God is His own interpreter. 
And the accusers of Jesus thought the Scriptures brought life through much study. But not particularly through Jesus Himself. Thus they missed the point and they missed out on true life. Don't miss out on true life. Know that the object of our faith is Jesus. Though some do come to rightly understand, even as others fail to grasp the truth, it should also be understood that the significance of the Son of God does not come from the praise and flattery of men. God does not particularly need men to recognize Him in order for Him to have glory. Already Jesus had said that He does not need the testimony of men for His words to be true. Now He states that He does not need human glory. But what does He mean by this? Listen, there's not something within God which is lacking such that He would need the glory of men. Though glory is His due. The point is that what man has to offer in terms of praise does not make his works to be true. Just because people like the works of Jesus don't make them true or untrue. The works that Jesus does, the signs and wonders, testify to his glory. Nevertheless, he is not desperate to win his opponent's acclaim. He doesn't need them to, you know, to appreciate what he's doing. R.C. Sproul once said that if you want to get a famous person to come to your event, the way to get him there was to give him some sort of great award. Erect a statue, grant an honorary degree, give him some great honor, and then invite that person to the presentation. Then they'll come. Why is this? Because men crave to be honored and given glory. This is true as true today as it was in the first century. But Jesus isn't like this. The religious leaders had a particular kind of Messiah in mind. What they wanted was acclamation from Him. They wanted a Messiah who would honor them. But Jesus is not petty. Nor would He stoop to be the kind of Messiah that they wanted. The Son of God did not need their approval, and He did not need their praise. He was not going to jump through their hoops and give them what they wanted. In contrast, Jesus' accusers sought glory from one another. They, they loved to be glorified by one another. This is made clear in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. How can you believe, Jesus asks. Jesus knows that his accusers do not love God, nor do they have the love of God in them. They do not receive the Son of God who was given by the Father, and yet they are more, more than willing to accept praise from others. And to, to, to seek others to give praise to. Their refusal to accept Jesus who comes with witness after witness, even as they receive glory from men, is evidence against them. If they truly loved God, then they would love the Son of God. As John puts it in 1 John, love for God is demonstrated by keeping His commandments. And when we keep His commandments, we overcome the world. And those who overcome the world are those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
The problem with the authorities who had come out against Jesus was that, again, they had their own particular idea of what the Messiah should be, which was not rooted rightly in the Word. The, the ideal Messiah in their minds would give glory to men. They do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God ultimately because there was no glory in that for them. There's nothing, there's nothing glorious for them in that. Why would we want that? They're not interested, therefore, in God or the things of God. What they're interested in is their own little personal kingdoms. Much like people today that desired praise from men. They would gladly receive a messianic claimant who would flatter them, who would praise them, who would shower them with adulation for their surpassing wisdom and insights. Oh, how smart you are! Add a boy! That's what they wanted. They wanted a Messiah who would give them glory. Hey, good job for figuring it out. Good students you are. They didn't want a Messiah who pursued the glory of God alone. They did not want a Messiah who would challenge their authority and smash their personal idols. They did not want a Messiah who would usher in a kingdom different from the one of their own imaginations. They did not want a Messiah like Jesus Christ was turning out to be. And why should they believe? Indeed, how could they believe? Because they were suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. As Paul says in Romans chapter 2, 29, A true Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. How true is this of people who name, who, who name the name of Christ, who, who have the banner of Christ, and yet don't know Jesus because Jesus isn't really the sort of Messiah that they want. Is Jesus the sort of Messiah that you want? Or is Jesus not really what you want and you would rather remake Jesus to be what you would like him to be? Our praise is not from men. The praise of Jesus is not from men, but from God. Now, although the authorities had come out accusing Jesus, Jesus does not come to press charges against them. He had come to save sinners, and so he, has not, he does not need to assume that role of judgment yet. Yet there was one who condemned them already. There is someone who accuses the Jewish leaders and authorities, and that is Moses. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. They followed Moses. They thought most high Moses was the greatest of all prophets to them. They had set their hope on him. And the very one that they esteemed most highly over anyone else now stands as their accuser. There's something ironic about that. We might ask how this is. Well, it's because they didn't even believe the words of Moses. They didn't believe John the Baptist. They didn't believe the works of Christ. They didn't believe the scriptures. And it turns out they don't actually believe Moses either. As much as they held Moses in such a lofty place, they did not believe because if they had believed Moses, then they would have believed Jesus because, it turns out, Moses wrote of Jesus Christ. This returns again to the fact that all of Scripture speaks of Jesus. 
It is not that the leaders had failed to obey this commandment or that commandment which Moses had given. What they had failed to do was to believe Moses when he wrote of the law and the covenant promises. They had understood the law as an end in in and of itself, but they had failed to see where the law pointed them to. They'd also fail to recognize the covenant promises of God, which find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is the stuff that Moses wrote about. We we studied Genesis. We've seen what Moses had written about the coming Christ. And so in their scrupulous adherence to the law, they had ignored the purpose of that law, namely to show them their sinfulness and their need for forgiveness that only God can bring. They'd failed to grasp the meaning of what Moses had written. And since they do not believe Moses, Jesus asked, how could they believe his words? They don't believe Moses. How are they going to believe Jesus? They're incapable, it turns out. The opposition to the Son of God was increasing by this point. It will culminate in his crucifixion. The authorities, ironically enough, will execute Jesus on the basis and of appeal to the law of God. John 19, 7. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. You see, they will use the law to accomplish their own ends. And yet, in God's providence, they will accomplish God's will. Despite themselves. And so though the Jewish leaders rejected the Messiah, the reader then is invited to believe because the witness of Scripture is clear. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into this world to save sinners like you and like me. John the Baptist has borne witness to Jesus. God the Father bears witness to Jesus through the works of Jesus, through all of Scripture. And even Moses, the greatest of all prophets, testifies to Jesus. And his testimony stands as as an accusation against the enemies of Christ. This beloved congregation has a practical application for us as well. Consider for a moment how Jesus defends himself. What does Jesus do as he defends the faith, as it were? Well, he appeals to Scripture. There's too many defenders of the faith in our day who attempt to make the case for the person and work of Jesus Christ as the Son of God without first and foremost appealing to Scripture. Beloved, we need to go to the Bible first and foremost when we defend the faith. For all the Scriptures speak of Jesus. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we're unwilling to appeal to other sources of information and evidence, but it is God himself in his word which speak of the truthfulness of our claims. Now, someone might say, but the unbeliever doesn't accept the Bible as an authority. They don't believe it. Well, so what? Some people don't accept the speed limit either, and yet that does not make it any less valid. That was on my mind driving across the country this week. I won't say how fast I was going. Dear Christian, I would encourage you, study the scriptures for yourself, but study them looking at the object of our faith. Look and see 
that the things that Jesus did and taught are consistent with that which was promised of him throughout all the scripture in the Old Testament. Be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 20. Examine the scriptures to see if these things be so. By the way, as they did that, as they honestly looked at the word, they saw that the things that the the Apostle Paul, the other missionaries were saying were true. These things are true. What they're saying is true. And then be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. With gentleness and respect. You may not be called upon to defend the faith. But knowing these things will give you great comfort. will build up your own faith in Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. He came to set the captives free. To save sinners like you and me. That you and I might have eternal life. Trust in him. Trust in his word. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We're thankful for these witnesses to the person and work of Jesus. That ultimately is the scriptures. It is you yourself, O God, who speak. Help us, O God, to listen. May we not be like the religious authorities who read the word looking for our own ideas and agendas and trying to find ways to make it fit what we want it to say, but help us to be conformed more and more to the image of your Son, that we might be conformed by your word, that we may read all of the scriptures and see Jesus, our Savior and our God. Bless us, we pray. Comfort us, build up our faith. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.